you would please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 2. In a moment, we're going to read verses 2 through, I'm sorry, verses 1 through 5, but we're going to focus specifically on verses 3 through 5 today. This Advent season, we're making our way through the first 20 verses of Luke chapter 2, this passage that is traditionally known as the Christmas story. And last week we looked at the first couple verses. If you weren't here with us, I'll give a brief recap. These first two verses tell us the specific time in which the Lord Jesus was born. Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor, sent out a decree that everyone within the bounds of his empire be registered. And as those who believe in a sovereign God who is reigning over all, we know that what is going on here is more than the whims of an emperor. To quote J.C. Ryle, the overruling providence of God appears in this single fact. He orders all things in heaven and earth. He turns the hearts of kings whithersoever he will. He overruled the time when Augustus decreed the taxing and directed the enforcement of the decree in such a way that Mary must needs be at Bethlehem when the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. This decree that we read of at the beginning of Luke 2 was made by an emperor who believed himself to be the son of a god. This decree will cause a pregnant woman who is nearly ready to give birth. It will get her exactly where she needs to be so that the true son of God will be born precisely where God promised he would be born some 700 years earlier. Now, I I noticed this. God could have sent an angel to Mary and said, hey, in order to fulfill the prophecy that I made back in Micah 5, I need you to go to Bethlehem. I'll line everything up. I'll get you a place to stay. You just need to head there, check in, do your appropriate nesting, and then have the baby in Bethlehem. But God doesn't do that. Joseph and Mary are forced to make this journey in the cold of winter, not because divine instruction came to them, but because of an order that came from Rome believe God is showing that he is Lord of all. He's not going to use his servant, the angel Gabriel, to move Mary. He's going to use his servant, Caesar Augustus. So Mary and Joseph are forced not only to travel late in pregnancy, but they're also forced to trust God. They are to trust, as the psalmist writes, that my times are in your hand. 
That was our application last week. My times, your times, are in his hand. They are not at the mercy of random chance. We're enabled to trust that he holds us fast, even when you find yourself in the midst of distressing circumstances. What does the hymn say? His oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Mary and Joseph are forced to Bethlehem and forced to trust in their God. So these are the circumstances surrounding the birth of Christ. And this week, what are we going to talk about? We're, we're going to look at the family lineage that Christ was born into. Let's talk about family lineage. How much do you know about your own ancestry, your, your family line? You know, it, I, I've seen that typically this is something you become more interested in as you age. Could be lots of reasons for that. But I remember my uncle did a deep dive into our family history some 10 years ago and then gave my dad a detailed family tree. And you'll be disappointed to find out there wasn't anyone particularly interesting in the family tree. The, the Wyndham Hotel people are somehow in another tree, not, not mine. Uh, instead, my Wyndhams were English immigrants, I think, who showed up in South Carolina and were farmers and over time moved from South Carolina to South Mississippi. I know some of you have incredibly interesting family histories, but why does it matter? Why does lineage matter? Well, there's the obvious example. If you're in England and you belong to the house of Windsor, Lineage determines whether or not you're going to be king or queen. But if you're like most everyone else, and lineage isn't going to determine whether you're a monarch, it could determine whether or not you get an inheritance. Your family line might serve as a pool of names from which you choose a name when uh, having a child. In, in our own family, uh, my first daughter was named after my great-grandmother, Sarah Louvie Kaufman. I'm sure our doctors in the congregation could tell you that knowing your family history is very important for health reasons. Does cancer, diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure run in your family? If so, uh, these good doctors can help you make better choices that might mitigate those risks. Lineage does matter. Well, here's another question. Why does lineage matter in Scripture? I mean, it's obvious it does. You've got whole chapters of the Old Testament that are dedicated to listing family trees. 
the New Testament opens with a genealogy. The first, I think, 17 verses of Matthew 1 are a genealogy. Why is lineage so important? It matters because the whole story of redemption, this one story that is unfolding over time throughout the pages of Scripture, involves one God and one particular family. I want to quote from my new dictionary of biblical theology. This is where the Bible starts and ends. In the Garden of Eden, God creates the first couple, the protological or the original people of God, and invites them to live under his rule. All too quickly, they refuse to accept God's terms and so are excluded from his presence. By the closing chapters of Revelation, however, the wheel has turned full circle. The story has returned to a garden comprising a new heaven and a new earth, which bears striking resemblance to Eden. The primary characteristics characteristic of this new place is that here God's servants live in intimacy with him forever as his people under his rule. This is what the story of scripture is about from beginning to end. God is establishing and saving and preserving one family. He tells Abraham, I will make your descendants more than the stars in the sky. As you read through the pages of Scripture, you'll see him break dead branches off of this tree. And you'll also see new branches grafted in that were not originally there. But God commits himself eternally to this one people. And we see that commitment resurface in today's text. Why is Joseph traveling? Because he belongs to this family. He was of the house and lineage of David. And we're going to talk about that family history, how it concerns Joseph, and how it concerns the Lord Jesus, and also, dear believer, how it concerns you. But first, let's pray. Father, would you speak to us through your word this morning? We know that it is living and active. We know that uh, through its hearing comes saving faith. So, Father, I pray, speak as your word is preached, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text is Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. 
The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So a few few background details I want to go through. First is, why do they have to travel to Bethlehem? I, I, I know we have the answer here that, well, because Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. But, but why was he required to travel? I found a note in my reading. The note is this. Persons counted in a Roman census were not normally required to return to their ancestral homes, as were Mary and Joseph. This census, though, seems to have been one that primarily counted Jews whose property rights were still largely grounded in ancestral land. So you've got property rights grounded in ancestral land. So maybe that's the reason. Maybe Joseph owned property in Bethlehem. Maybe he was born in Bethlehem and was required to return to the city of his origin. Whatever the legal reasoning, Joseph is not able to be registered properly in Nazareth. And so he must go to Bethlehem. And I'm sure he was loath to leave his pregnant wife alone in Nazareth. I'm sorry, pregnant betrothed. We'll get to that in a moment. So she goes with him. Well, we now get to that detail. What does it mean to be betrothed? Mary and Joseph are not yet married Uh, They are betrothed, and here's your short, quick, and fast definition. It is to be legally pledged to another in marriage. You know, if you are engaged to be married, but this is stronger than our engagements. You know, with, with our engagements, if you get cold feet, you just call off the wedding, and then you wind up eating the frozen food that was going to be served at the reception for the next four months. This is is a tougher, tighter uh, commitment. If you get cold feet, you had to get a divorce if you were betrothed. And we see vestiges of this in our own wedding ceremonies. In your traditional wedding ceremonies, you'll see the father of the bride walk down the aisle walk the bride down the aisle and then stand between the bride and the groom and the minister will say something to the effect of who then is it who gives this woman to be married to this man? And the father responds, her mother and I. And then the father places his daughter's hand in the hand of the groom and then goes and sits down. That's, that's a picture of betrothal. There was this commitment made that the woman's welfare, her care and protection, provision would be transferred from her father's house to her prospective husband. Even though the wedding might be months or even years away, a couple would pledge themselves to one another. And this was a legally binding engagement. So Mary and Joseph are betrothed. The other detail we get that we don't need to miss is that Mary is pregnant. Now, how did that happen? 
not by Joseph. They were only betrothed. They were not allowed to engage in sexual relations until after their wedding ceremony. And so how is Mary pregnant? Well, an answer is given for us in the previous chapter. When the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and informs her that she will become pregnant, she says, how will this happen? And then Gabriel gives an answer of how the, the, the means of this conception. And we might think it a crude topic to even ask about, but we have an answer given by the angel Gabriel. He says, The Holy Spirit will overshadow you, Mary. What does that mean? We're given a couple pictures elsewhere. This is the same language that is used in the creation account in Genesis 1 when we're told the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Spirit of God was there, ready to take everything that had been created up to that point and then mold it and fashion it and give it form and beauty. That work of divine creation is what the Holy Spirit will do in this woman. There's another example that comes at the end of the book of Exodus. The glory cloud overshadowing the tabernacle. You know, all this work was done to construct and decorate the tabernacle. This tent in which the presence of God would dwell and He would travel with His people through the wilderness. And when it was complete and everything was ready, we're told that the cloud covered the tent and the glory of the Lord filled it. This was a sign of the very presence of God that He had come down to dwell with His people. And so in Mary, that same Shekinah glory had come down, overshadowed her, and the very presence of God Almighty was in her womb. It's amazing to consider. So those are a few background details, but let's get back to our family history. First, we want to consider this family history concerning Joseph. He's traveling to Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. Joseph had one really important person in his family tree, and it was King David. I want to tell you a little bit about King David. He was Israel's greatest king. He ruled for a total of 40 years. You could sum up his rise to power in this statement. The Lord God of hosts was with him. It wasn't that he was smarter than everyone else or he was more cunning than everyone else. It wasn't his ambition. His success was due to the Lord God of hosts being with him. He was king. He was also a warrior. He was the one who killed the terrible Philistine giant Goliath. He was also a poet and musician who wrote 
at least 73 of the 150 psalms. And he could calm the mind of King Saul with his music. We also know that David was known as a man after God's own heart. We also know that David had a very public sin. Adultery followed by murder. The aftershocks of which led to one disaster after another and a cruel cycle of violence that David really was helpless to stop. But you can't talk about David without also talking about his repentance and restoration. When David repents, he is forgiven and restored. And in his story, we see God's grace and his eternal loving kindness on full display. If you want a quick summary of David's life, you can read 2 Samuel 22, which is David's song of praise. And then 2 Samuel 23, where we see the last words of David. And in those chapters, you'll notice that every good thing David experienced, every success, every victory, he credits to the Lord. It was the Lord who gives his king great victories. It's the Lord who shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. And Joseph was one of those offspring. Joseph's lineage is greater than the lineage of Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus had Julius Caesar as a great uncle. Joseph had King David as a great, great, great grandfather. And so he travels back to the birthplace in order to be Registered. This family history also concerns the Lord Jesus. You may have missed it, but he's mentioned in this text. At the very end of verse 5, we're told Mary was with child. That child was the Lord Jesus Christ. Back in chapter 1, the angel Gabriel not only tells Mary how she will become pregnant... He also tells her something about the child within her. In Luke 1, 32-33, Gabriel says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You see, God made a promise to David. Theologians call this the Davidic covenant. That promise was that one of the descendants of David would sit on a throne and reign forever. Now this promise seemed like it was in danger because David's descendants were screw-ups. They sinned, they led the people astray, they worshipped other gods, and then after hundreds of years of warnings, judgment comes, and they're either killed or taken into exile in Babylon. And from that point onward, 
there develops this hope among the people of God. This, this message we see pop up over and over again in the mouths of the prophets that one day God will restore his favor to his people. He will raise up a new righteous king in the line of David. And this hope is in the Messiah, or in Greek, the Christ. So that's the news that Gabriel brings Mary, that she, that, that, that's who she's carrying in her womb to Bethlehem, this promised descendant who would have the title Christ and sit on David's throne and reign forever. I, I wonder how often we forget that the Lord Jesus is reigning and ruling today. Today. His reign is not simply a future reign that we look forward to, but a reign that applies today. This family history, I mean, we've seen it apply to Joseph. We've seen it apply to the Christ. And up to this point, you may be thinking, well, great for them. They belong to one of those special families. They're one of those families that have important people in them. But my folks belong to the red clay hills and pine trees of South Mississippi. You remember I mentioned God's ability to break off old branches and also graft in new wild branches. You ever watch someone graft a fruit tree? I believe it's called the root stock. The, the, the root stock is the host tree. I don't know if that's the right word. It, it's, the, it's the larger, more mature tree And it will be cut, sometimes split at the top, sometimes in the side. A sharp knife will cut the bark away. And then this little twig, I believe it's scion, Kurt, is that right? Is that the scion? The scion is then wedged down into that wound and wrapped tightly with tape. You know what happens? They are united together. And that little stem that was wedged into the wound of that larger tree grows and bears fruit. Dear Christian, that is a picture of what has been done for you in Christ. He is the tree, He is the rootstock. The, the stem of Jesse's lineage that we'll sing about in a moment. And we are that scion with no hope apart from him. Fruitless apart from him. Useless apart from him. But he was wounded for us. 
And by his grace, through faith, we are united to him. And we are bound by the Holy Spirit and made alive to bear fruit. Jesus didn't go to the cross so that you would be free to just go off and to live apart from him and just be a part of another family. He died so that you might be joined to him forever. So that you would abide in him and he would abide in you. We've been grafted in. And we have life in him. And we're made a part of this family. This is the family that we have been brought into. This family that the entire Bible is speaking of. This family that God is creating and placing under his rule. This family that God commits uh, to, uh, to work from beginning to end. We are made a part of. This family that ends with total restoration and a glorious realized vision of God with his covenant people living in thrilling communion in a perfect remade environment. We are brought into that family. And as Christians... You know, we're part of a family. There, there are titles. You can look at the House of Windsor. There are all these different titles that people have. We, we have a title. Have you thought about that? As, as Christians, we take on the title of our Lord. You know, there's this silly gimmick I've seen where anyone in this room could become a lord or lady in Scotland. You buy a square foot of land in Scotland, and apparently being a landowner in Scotland makes you a lord of, or lady. You receive a title. You can receive it in the mail. As believers, we are brought into this family, and we take on the title of our Lord. Just as Jesus is the Christ, his his people are, are Christians. We are little Christs, ordained by the same Father, anointed with the same Spirit. And we do the same work as our namesake, his work as prophet, priest, and king. We do that same work only in a lesser way. I want you, this Christmas season, as you read and sing about this family, about Jesse's family, about David, about Joseph. I want you to remember that image that you and I, those wild olive shoots that have been grafted in by faith, and we will dwell with him forever. Let's pray. Father God, you made a way for us. As far as I know, 
no one in this room, or at least very few people in this room, would come from an ethnically Jewish background. We are all Gentiles. And yet we are gathered here uh, by the power of your Spirit and the joy of your salvation because you have grafted us in. These wild olive shoots that were unproductive and unfruitful on our own have been grafted in because our Lord was wounded for us. And Father, as we go to the table this morning, we will taste this this wounding that was done for us. Father, I pray that we would never forget it and that through us, that your spirit would work in such a way that we would be fruitful and that you might be glorified, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.